but in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, uh, in the middle of all this, this cold and this frigidness, Father, we, we see neighbors and uh, fellow Midwesterners and, and really all across the country losing power, um, losing heat. Father, we pray um, that you would preserve life. We pray, Father, for um, your churches in all the places where uh, heat is in short supply, that they would be places of refuge, that um, your people would be bold to reach out with care and compassion to their neighbors. We pray, Father, for uh, speedy crews to get electricity and heat back online for people in need. And we pray again, Father, that those of us who uh, are doing okay, where the, the heat is on and our, our houses are warm, Father, that wherever we may be, that we would be able to show the love of Christ to those who have a lack, who have that need. Father, we uh, hear again, uh, we think about the book of Revelation, and we hear about war and rumors of war as um, we engage in new military operations uh, against Yemen. And uh, Father, uh, we desire peace uh, compassionately because we want to live peaceful and tranquil lives and because we want good things for our neighbors. Um, and yet we know uh, in this imperfect world uh, that uh, fighting and war are sometimes part of that equation. Father, we pray for great wisdom um, to our political leaders, to the political leaders of Britain, uh, to the leaders in Yemen, uh, that there might be uh, a ratcheting down of hostilities that it would not be an escalation of violence, and that life would be preserved. Father, as we go into a new year and, and we are reflecting on the things that we want to be, the things that we could be, the things that we hope will be true of us this year versus next year, I pray that we would keep our eyes squarely on Jesus Christ that our hopes and our dreams and our goals would be rooted in him. And that we would know that because he has gone before us and he has succeeded precisely where we failed, he was sinless when we are great sinners, we would have the confidence to know that when we stumble, when we fail, when we fall, when we are unable to uphold by our own power our greatest dreams and aspirations of who we want to be, He has already overcome. So we pray, Father, that we would make our commitments in the name of Jesus that the greatest aspirations of our heart would be those things that draw us closer to Him. And we pray that in our inevitable failings, that it would not be a time to give up, but a time to press into Him and His grace and His goodness toward us. We pray, Father, that as we uh, begin a potentially difficult sermon series, um, that you would guide me, guide us as a church, that we might be hearers and doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series, and if you didn't know, if you didn't get one, or you're just brand new, um, we do publish a card. It's by the 
That's on the table by the exit. It's got all the upcoming sermons on it. Um, and we, we do that because we want you to know. We want you to be prepared. We want you to read the Bible. Um, this is our authority. It's God's word to us is what we believe. Um, and, and so whatever I say, if, it, if I'm saying what God's word is saying, great. And if I'm not, throw it out. Check what I say or anyone else who preaches here says against God's word. But that's there for you can kind of see where we're going and, and how this is um, going to progress between now and the end of the, the spring. We publish those three times a year. So let's turn to the book of uh, Revelation, uh, chapter 1, as we begin a, a series on this book. It is the last book of your New Testament, so you could turn to the very end and start flipping forward. Is one way you could get there. And we are going to look at all of chapter 1 this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire, and his voice 
was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet though, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, my original title for this sermon series was It's the End of the World as we know it, and I feel fine, subtitled Sermons from REV, uh, but they got voted down. Um, but when you think about the book of Revelation, singular, not revelations, what do you think about? I, I gather you do think about the end of the world. Uh, more than that, you think about the end times, uh, and, and the word for that is eschatology, the study of last things. And this is a book that speaks about the end times. It's a book that speaks about eschatology. And at the end of the book, 22nd chapter, uh, is one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible. I, I hope you've read it. It goes like this. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the book of Revelation does say something about the end of the world, at least as far as we know it, and gives Christians tremendous reason to feel fine about it. More than fine, even. But if we're being honest, you probably have some other thoughts about the book of Revelation. You might think it's a really complicated book. Um, you have to be some type of scholar to understand it. It's full of all sorts of symbols and pictures that seem a little bit like our world, and then at other points, very, very far away from anything in our world. Maybe you've been to an event uh, where some person who had really studied these things spoke, and, and they had all sorts of charts and and timelines, explaining how everything fit together. And you looked around, and you saw all sorts of nodding heads, 
maybe heard some amens, and you thought, wow, I am really confused. This stuff is so beyond me. Those kind of talks or conferences even have been popular in certain church traditions for a little over 100 years. And, and so you heard something like that, maybe. Maybe you are that guy. Maybe you're the guy who has it all figured out, and you speak at those events now and then, or you keep a list of charts and graphs in the back of your Bible so that you can explain them to people over coffee. You are that guy. I, I think, though, the most common experience people have, and, and I could be wrong, it, but it's similar to the experience that I had, is that you've heard some things. You've heard about an antichrist, and you've heard about a, a beast, and a tribulation, and a, a rapture, and you know it's, it's supposed to all be in this book somewhere. And, and maybe you kind of sort of know where to look to find those, those things, but then when you read it for yourself... You see the images, you see the ideas people are talking about, but you don't understand how they get all this detail that they seem to have. They, have, they seem to know all these intricacies that you, you just don't see them there in the Bible. It looks pretty vague and strange to you, and you don't see where they're getting all of this information from, but it, it seems to be coming from a trustworthy source. So you accept it, but you don't fully understand it. And there's probably a good chance that if you've, if you've lived more than 15 or 20 years, you, you, you've come upon at least one prediction of the end of the world and all of these things coming true. You know, two recent examples were the, the Revelation 12 sign that supposedly occurred, I, I don't remember, was it 2018 or 2019? Um, and then there was the uh, Harold Camping uh, his calculations about the end of the world, I think that was around 2016 or so. You might have remembered people were driving around cities and highways with, with billboards and signs on their vehicles warning people about the imminent end of the world, which I think was in September or something like that. It was the end of the world, at least as we know it. And so all of that kind of gets jumbled in, and, and, and we feel like this is a very confusing book. And I've, you know, I have wanted to preach through this book uh, for a while. I didn't necessarily feel like it was the time. Um, we kind of have a, a cycle that we go through here at Gateway um, of, of going between the Old Testament and the New Testament and different types of literature to, to kind of keep me honest, to make sure I'm not just preaching on what I want to preach on, uh, but, but we're preaching the whole Word of God. And, and so there's certain kind of times in my schedule where Revelation could come up, and, and one of those times came up, and I, I want to preach it, but there's a part of me that's like, ah, just, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite ready. I, I want to study some more. And the other elders urged me to preach on Revelation this year, so I, I agreed um, but even I get that feeling that there's a lot here. It's weighty. And it's tough. I share your concerns. But here's one goal I have. One goal I have is to convince you that this book is not as complicated as it seems. 
It was written to be understood. It was not written to be a puzzle. It was written to be understood by people who had far less education than probably anyone in this room who has gotten through junior high. Now, there are a number of important ideas in this book. But let me give you, at least take a stab at giving you what I think is the overarching theme. The thing that kind of holds the whole book together. It's this, that the risen Jesus, who is entirely trustworthy and true, rules over all of history, bringing hope and comfort to his people, even and especially in times of suffering. The risen Jesus, who is entirely trustworthy and true, rules over all of history, bringing hope and comfort even and especially in life's sufferings to his people. And that, I think, is a message that sounds like good news. That's a message that sounds hopeful. That is a message that sounds good. That is a message that I need. And I believe that that is the theme of this book. And yet we ignore that. For some understandable reasons, we're not going to ignore it. This is a good message to hear, especially if you are a Christian who is worried about the direction of history or who is undergoing suffering, especially unjust suffering, especially suffering for the sake of Jesus. Our passage this morning is Revelation 1. This is one of the longest passages we'll cover in this series, and there's a lot in here. I kind of wish I had divided it up a bit more. At the same time, I only have so many weeks to get through all this material without losing everyone's interest. Um, there's a lot here, though, in this one chapter. And I want you to keep your eyes in the right place. It's about Jesus. That's true, of course, about the whole Bible. But it really comes through in these 20 verses. It's all about Jesus. Now, there's a lot here. I'm going to try to take my time with it because it's so important that you, that you believe that this book is understandable. And this chapter sets up some important themes that are going to get picked up throughout the rest of this book. And they just keep coming back over and over again. And so there's going to be some places then where I can kind of go a little bit lighter on some things. It says up here because we're going to be able to come back to them in the next few weeks. But if I, can, if I succeed at nothing else besides convincing you that this book can be understood and has value, not just as some sort of forecasting mechanism of charts and graphs, but something that is valuable for your everyday life, so that you read it, then I think that 
will have been a very good thing, no matter what else you take away from this series. So let's talk about Jesus, okay? And in terms of the overarching theme of Revelation, the first chapter leans heavy on the first part of that idea that the resurrected Jesus reigns as king. And I want to, we're going to look at this in sort of uh, three to four big chunks and, and see what it tells us about Jesus. Now, I take the title for today's sermon from the ideas of verses one through three. The passage begins with what is almost sounds like a title, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is the word apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalypse. And sometimes this book is called the apocalypse. We use that term apocalypse to refer to like a huge disaster. But that's just because there's pictures of disasters in the book of Revelation. We've kind of associated those two things together. But the word means revelation in the sense of revealing something that has been hidden, something that has not been seen is now being seen, is now being made known. And the author of this book, John, which we pick up in verse 2, is telling us that he has learned something, he has seen something, he has gleaned something that to this point was not known, or at least was not known so clearly, and it is being revealed. And I call this a glorious chain of custody. Because if you follow the logic, what do we get? We get that God, that is God the Father, gives this revelation, this revealing to Jesus Christ, that is God the Son. And from the Son, it passes to his angel. Angels are generally heavenly servants of God who act as his messengers. And the word angel means messenger. So that would be an appropriate vessel to communicate a message. And from the angel, it goes to John. Seems most likely this was John the Apostle, the former fisherman, one of the twelve, and one of what seemed like the inner three with the two other fishermen, James, his brother, and, and Peter. But it doesn't end with John. Because John bore witness to all that he saw. And so now that chain of custody goes down to the one who reads aloud and the one who hears it. That's how reading was done, by and large, at a time before printing presses and and written documents were scarce. If you wanted to read something... Uh, one person would read aloud and, and the others would listen. Audiobooks were sort of the norm. They're actually kind of ancient. But do you see what that means? It means that this, this chain of custody has come down to us. It has come down to you. It came down from John to me, who just read it aloud, to you, who heard me read it aloud. And so there's this glorious chain of custody from the Father, through the Son, through the Son's angel, through John, through me, to you. 
And Jesus' name is highlighted at the top of this list because he is the central figure. We don't want to lose sight of him. But John wants you to know that this message that is rumbling around in your head this morning, having passed through your ears, is because God himself has established a glorious chain of custody to ensure that the words of heaven are perfectly and faithfully transmitted to you. And we believe that that's true of all the scripture, but John's message is unique in that he is keenly aware of the source of his message and why he was getting it and that the destination was us. It was you. He knows that even as he puts pen to papyrus and he desperately needs you to know that you have the words of heaven in your head as you read or hear this book. That alone sounds like something important, something urgent. But then he underscores it by saying the time is near. What time, John? What, what is near? What is going to happen? Well, we, we better keep reading, yeah? But before we lean in on another reason why we need to know this book, we must read, um, or why we must read the book, we, we have to be confident that we're supposed to be able to understand it because John writes in verse 3, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Keep can also be translated obey. We have the same idea in English. You keep your word, you keep your promise. means you act consistent with what you said. Um, So this message has something that needs to be obeyed. And obedience to that message means blessing. But how can we obey something that we don't understand? So Jesus must want us to understand this book. There's glorious chain of custody from heaven to earth, from the heart of God to the ears of saints, is for your blessing, so long as you don't ignore it or write it off, but obey it. That's our first picture. Second, I said a, a few minutes ago that Revelation belongs, well, I kind of skipped that in my notes, but uh, I, I mentioned that we have these different sections of Scripture. And one of those sections of Scripture that we have is, is called the general epistles or the general letters. That's one of the sections that I move through as um, I, I try to figure out what we should be preaching on next. And you probably don't think about this book as a letter. But that's what it is. And it becomes really obvious in verse 4, which has the basic letter format of the ancient world. From so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. That was kind of the ancient letter opening. That's how they wrote. Sometimes they were that simple. But... In books of the Bible that are letters, and there's a number of them, they are usually a little bit longer, and they give us a preview of what the book is going to be about. 
And what do you know? John, John points us to Jesus. So he starts, John, that's simple enough, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We're going to get to those churches uh, a bit more uh, starting in chapters 2 and 3, but it's an important reminder that this letter is written to real people who lived and breathed and had dreams and had goals and had struggles, and they were supposed to understand it too. These people living in important cities of the Roman province of Asia, which is the, the western end of the country that we call Turkey. And then like many Christian letters, John offers his readers grace and peace from God. But then listen to how he describes God. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The grace and peace that John offers does not come from one. It does not come from two. It comes from three. It comes from Father, Spirit, Son. And John writes of the, the Father as him who is and who was and who is to come. It's a reminder of God's eternal, unchanging nature. It reminds us of how he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush in the desert centuries before when Moses asked God, what is your name that I can tell the Israelites who is sending me to them God says that he should tell them that he is called I am who I am. And if you look that passage up in Exodus 3, you have a footnote there probably that says that it can also be translated, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be, or any variation of those. The point is, is that God is really beyond our full understanding, but two things we can know for certain. One, he exists. There are a lot of pretenders out there, Allah and Zeus and Ra, but he is the one who is. And second, he is unchanging. He isn't loving today and spiteful tomorrow. He isn't in control one day and then out of sorts the next who he is is who he was, and who he was is who he will continue to be. He does not change. The Spirit, the Spirit is called the seven spirits who are before his throne. And many would suggest a translation that might better capture the, the meaning there is the sevenfold spirit that's before his throne. It's the second use already, if you're paying attention, of the uh, of the use of the number seven in this book. And it's a number that's going to come up again and again and again. And, and that first one might have been overlooked because there are seven actual churches which John is writing, so you might not have taken anything of it, but there's going to be something going on with these seven. Seven in, in ancient Hebrew thought symbolized perfection and completeness. So there's a sense in which this letter that's written to seven churches is being written, yes, to seven churches, but also that these seven churches are symbolic of all of God's people, wherever they are and whenever they are. And the sevenfold spirit 
is the perfect spirit, the divine spirit of God who is everywhere at all times. And there's Jesus, the Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. Three descriptions of Jesus here. And they're all important to us understanding this book. Jesus is the faithful witness. That means he gives true and honest testimony to all the things about God. He is the perfect representation of God, as the Bible says elsewhere. So his very existence is a testimony to God and what God is like. As John himself writes at the very beginning of his gospel, in the book of John, verses, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, or he has explained him, or he has revealed him. But during his earthly ministry, his earthly existence, the Son also gave true testimony about God with his words and with his actions, no matter who was before him. He testified truthfully to the poor and to the rich. He spoke boldly to the weak and to the powerful. And as Jesus is, so his followers are called to be. We too are called to give a faithful witness about God, no matter what comes our way. A message that would be especially important for those Christians in those seven churches, as we will soon see a little bit today and more as we go on. He is called the firstborn from the dead. That's a phrase that Paul also uses in the book of uh, Colossians, a letter to another church that's maybe not coincidentally in the same area. Jesus, who was God dwelling among us, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, went to the cross. And as he himself says in, in John 10, no one takes his life from him, but he lays down his life of his own choice. But like he also says in that same place, he had the authority not only to lay down his life, but to take it back up again. And that's exactly what he did on Easter Sunday in A.D. 33. And so he became, in a way, the firstborn among the dead. The Bible does describe other people as coming back from the dead. We know of Stories in our day of people having near-death experiences, people who were clinically, medically dead, and then not being dead a few minutes later. But Jesus is different than that. Those individuals had temporary relief from death. And then you know what happened to them later? They died and did not get back up. Death still had a claim on them, 
But in God's goodness, they were mercifully given a chance to live a little while longer. Jesus rose from the dead in a different way. Jesus rose from the dead in a way that death no longer holds any claim over him. He defeated death. And when he rose from the dead, he was still Jesus, but his body had become something that's almost contradictory in the way we normally use the English language. He has a spiritual body. We tend to use spirit and and physical, spirit and body as, as opposites, and yet Jesus has this new thing. His body still has the marks of the nails that held him to the cross, still has the hole where the spear pierced his side and, and likely into his heart so that something like water and blood flowed from his side, probably the red blood cells and the plasma which had separated out because of the trauma he had endured. And so besides having four literal holes in his body, he had suffered a tremendous loss of blood. And yet here he was, not perfectly healed up, and yet fully alive. He wasn't alive in a natural way that we know, because no natural body can exist in that state. But he is alive in a new spiritual way. He is first born from the dead because through his resurrection, he was born, so to speak, into this, this new mode of existence, an existence he promises his followers will join. He's first because followers follow. Not only is he not dead, but he has moved beyond the reach of death with the promise to take his followers with him. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is seated in the throne room of heaven. And John can also describe him as ruler of the kings of the earth. He is king of kings and lord of lords, the powerful, the most powerful in this world, must answer to the eternal command of Jesus. Make no mistake about who is in charge of this world right now. Right now. And to John's first readers, that was a powerful statement. They were under the thumb of the Roman emperor. There's a little debate about when this book was written. I lean toward the view that most hold that it was written probably in the 90s, 80, 90 no thousands or hundreds before that, during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And Domitian was a heavy-handed and and exacting uh, dictator. He wanted a strict adherence to historic Roman virtues and ethics and religion. It was Domitian's view of what Rome should be. The glories of a past age that had faded away after Rome had burned an emperor had committed suicide and a civil war had ensued. He wanted to bring Rome back to a time when it was, in his mind, truly great. He was a dictator in a way that his recent predecessors had not been. 
he promoted the worship of emperors. Scholars debate whether and how much he wanted people to worship him personally, but at a minimum, it seems like he did not refuse it. And although we cannot find any evidence of any systematic, widespread attacks against Christianity during this time, there is plenty of evidence that the Christian religion, which was so at odds with the Roman religion, was at least occasionally met with extremely harsh treatment. And following the Christian faith might often have been a useful justification for getting rid of people who were otherwise undesirable or unuseful to the king any longer. He was an absolute monarch who saw himself as God, or at least as someone who would soon become a god. And it was not the best of circumstances to live under as a Christian. Sometimes the eye is deceptive, though. It looked like Domitian was on the throne. But far above Domitian, beyond all the kings and satraps in the East and India and the emperors in China, there was a ruler above them all, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a small d Democrat, I'm a, and that means I'm a big fan of democracy. But one of democracy's evils, as it leads us voters to think that everything depends on the next election, and everything depends on getting it right. And look, it matters what happens on March 19 and what happens on November 5th. But make no mistake, Jesus was the ruler over King George III, and he was the ruler over George Washington. And he will still be on the throne on January 21st, 2025. No one else. Often at the beginning of ancient letters, there was a wish or a, a prayer for well-being. But for John, that becomes a blessing. And it's a blessing of Jesus himself. And it adds even more descriptions of Jesus. Jesus is the one who loves us. If you are a Christian, Jesus loves you in a special, unique way. You are his own, like a shepherd tending his sheep, loves and cares for the sheep of his fold. doesn't mean he's mean to other sheep or other animals or other people, but he protects and lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus' love is most supremely demonstrated in that action that he gave up his life, that he died on the cross for you. In John's gospel, in the book of John, he doesn't name all of the apostles directly, but there is one really surprising omission, which is that John does not name check John. 
But there's this surprising, strange figure who's always near Jesus. Who's just simply called the disciple that Jesus loved. And has long been believed that this disciple was John himself. That he inserted himself into the story not as the important apostle John, but as the man that undeservedly, unfathomably, unreasonably, Jesus loved. And probably more than any other writer in the Bible, John wrote about the incalculable, indescribable, unmatched love of Jesus and what it meant for his followers. Christian, you are loved. And Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the gospel in a nutshell, the good news that our sins, our rebellions against God enslave us and then they claim us in death. But Jesus sets us free by dying in our place, shedding his own blood. That is good news. Sin and death do not get to have the last word, or at least they don't need to. And he made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That, the idea that God's people should be a royal priesthood or, or a priestly monarchy uh, is, is an idea that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In John's mind, the promises that were made to God's people long ago in the lands of Egypt and Canaan and Sinai and Mesopotamia are still in force. But they don't belong. They don't belong to a particular ethnic group. They belong to those who Jesus loves whether those people are Jews or Gentiles, Greeks or Turks, Indians or Pakistanis, Americans or Canadians. That's who holds these promises. And to this Jesus belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But I thought that God could not share his glory with another. Isn't that what was said through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament? Exactly. God cannot share his glory with another. And all glory and dominion belong to Jesus. You do the math. And then it's almost like John just cannot contain himself any longer. He's got a lot to say. There are 22 chapters in this book. But but guys, you got to know something. He says, Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming back for his people like he said he was. It's happening. Suddenly, John, he just breaks from the typical convention of ancient letters. And it's like this this brief mention of Jesus just takes him away in excitement. He's got a lot to tell you, but he, he, he can't bear the lead anymore. He needs you to know Jesus is coming, guys. 
I know it's rough out there. I know it looks bad out there. I know it looks like the world is deteriorating. I know that Domitian is, is doing all kinds of crazy things. I know the local governors are, are on your back. I know that sometimes your friends and family that are over in the synagogue over there are wondering why you're following this Messiah over here. And I know that it's painful. And I know that some of you have lost your lives. I know that some of you guys have lost your economic opportunities. I know that some of you are simply a reproach in your neighborhood. I know it seems like the world is going to pot, but Jesus is coming. I can't, I can't bury that anymore, John says. I just, I just got to let you know. And he's going to say a lot more than that, but he just gets six verses in and just can't contain the good news anymore. Jesus is coming. And then God himself weighs in. It's not how letters usually work, but God weighs in. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Alpha, Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying, I'm the beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And, and sort of like, it's like God is like reaffirming his unchanging nature and his eternal power in a way. So it's like the, the highest authority in all of his existence has just given testimony that what John just said, it's all true. The ruler of the kings of the earth who has defeated death is returning in all power and all the glory of heaven's throne room. So do you get that Jesus is kind of a big deal here? So this is a letter and the focus is about this coming and returning ruler of the kings of the earth, Jesus. I can scarcely do justice this chapter in one sermon. And I know I'm running short on time. Um, but we got to get to this, this last section here briefly. Because John starts to get down to brass tacks a little bit. He's given us a little bit of an intro. He's given us a traditional letter opening. And that traditional letter opening went a little bit off the rails because of his excitement about King Jesus. But now he's going to try to settle down and tell us just what it is that happened to him. Just what it is he saw. And how he came about getting this information, this revelation that he gave for me to read and for you to hear. John identifies himself by identifying himself with his readers. He's their brother, he says. He, he shares in all the things that come with being connected to Jesus. The trials and the glories of the kingdom and the need to endure through life with patience. And the proof of that is that he is on Patmos which is today, it probably was then as well, a gorgeous island off the coast of Turkey. But the reason he's there is because of his commitment to the word of God and giving faithful witness to Jesus. In other words, he is there because he is in exile. And John was familiar with persecution. Soon after Jesus ascended to heaven, John and Peter were arrested and questioned by Jewish authorities and told to no longer preach about Jesus. They did. Later, 
uh, soon thereafter that, uh, the, all the apostles were arrested by the Jewish authorities and were summarily beaten. And then sometime after that, John's brother James was beheaded by King Herod. And that might have been a bit of a political calculation, but he thought that by executing a prominent Christian, he might gain the approval of the Jewish population, much of which did not particularly like King Herod. Whatever those churches in Asia were suffering, whatever you are suffering for Jesus, John wants to remind you he is a partner in your suffering. So here's his story. He's, he's caught up in the personal worship of God on a particular Sunday, and he hears this booming voice telling him to write a letter to these seven churches. And, and as you might expect, as you probably would do, he turns to look to see where this voice is coming from and who is speaking to him, and he sees one like a son of man standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Now there's so much going on in these verses, and I'm going to blow through them quickly. And we'll get a chance to dig in on them over the next couple weeks. These are going to come up very quickly again. But this one like a son of man, this is Jesus. Here, John is using the language of the prophet Daniel, who had seen a vision of a figure who looked like a man, but was clearly something more than a man because he is godlike. So he's like a son of man. I don't know what to do with this figure I'm seeing, Daniel says, because he's got all the power and authority of God, but he looks like a man. And I don't know what to do with that. And, and it's a good moment to just pause for a second and say, because I've mentioned several places already where this chapter echoes or quotes or cites Old Testament passages, and I have deliberately not mentioned several others for the sake of time. And I think if there is one reason we don't understand the book of Revelation, even though the uneducated hearers of this letter in those seven ancient churches did understand it, is because they knew their Old Testament. They might not have had Bibles in their homes, but week in and week out, they went to synagogues and then later into the churches, and they read the Old Testament. Testament. That was the only scripture they had at first. And they taught the Old Testament week in and week out. And so if you really want to understand this book, start by reading the Old Testament. And if you've never read the whole Old Testament, this would be a good year to do that for the first time. First time, because it shouldn't be your last time, but this is the year. Get a reading plan. I have one uh, in the back that I recommend, I suggest. It starts on January 1, but you can renumber it or you can catch up. It doesn't matter. There's also a million other Bible plans out there. If you want a custom plan, if you're like, Chris, I, I want to read the Old Testament. I'd like to do it by such and such a date, and, and I want to start it. I want to do it like this, but I don't want to do it like this. Cool. You, you come to me. Tell you what. We will make a customized reading plan for you. I will help you with that. It is that valuable. It is that important. If you want to break the Old Testament into three or four mini plans, I will help you do that. But dang it, read, read the Bible. It's, it's good for you. It's good for you. They had to wait until Sunday and, and hear whatever uh, scroll could be read 
uh, that particular Sunday, and that was their Bible intake for the, the week, and yet they knew it well. And we've got it in our phone and in our backpack and on our tablet and on our laptop, and we don't know it. It's, it's not good. But anyhow, this Jesus that John sees does not look like the Jesus that John followed across the Sea of Galilee into the Jerusalem temple to a wedding in Canaan through a Samaritan village or to a nighttime meeting of the Sanhedrin or to a hill called Calvary. This is a vision. He is seeing something symbolic. And Jesus has white hair. It's a picture of God from the Old Testament. He's ancient. He has existed from the beginning and he has the wisdom to prove it. He's dressed like a heavenly priest, so he is both priest and he is God. And his eyes are like flames of fire because he sees piercingly and perfectly. And he will judge the world with that sort of perfect clarity. His feet also match the description of of, of Daniel's divine vision. And so he is priest, and he is king, and he is, in fact, God. His voice is thunderous, like the voice of God in the Old Testament is often described. His voice is powerful, it's fear-inducing, and that is underscored by one of the strangest images, that he has a sword protruding from his mouth. But the image is clear. Jesus' words can tear you up. Jesus' words can dissect the soul and rip a heart into two. To bring an end to the old and bring life to the new. But you also get the sense that Jesus' word is a word of judgment. The sword was a symbol of judgment. And on his tongues and by his lips is the power of life and death. Jesus didn't carry a physical sword. When he told a demon to leave, it left. When he told a man to walk, the man walked. When he told a storm to calm down, the storm calmed down. When Jesus comes for a final battle at the end of the ages, he will not come with an M4 carbine. He will not come with tactical nukes. He will put down the nations with a word. And his face glows with all the glories of God. And John is terrified. I think that is fair. This is a terrifying portrait. This is not baby Jesus in a manger, meek and mild. This is not the lamb led to slaughter who is refusing to answer his arrogant accusers but gladly accepting the insults of the Jewish council and the beatings of Roman soldiers and the humiliating and painful trial of the cross. This Jesus is a force to be reckoned with, a power who could destroy John with a whisper. And Jesus puts his hand on him and says, do not fear. No doubt some of the happiest words John had ever heard. And Jesus tells him the score. He says, I am the first and the last, which By the way, that's exactly how Yahweh, Jehovah, describes himself in the Old Testament. Just keep that one in your back pocket when the Mormons or the JWs come to your door. 
Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. We've already mentioned that that Jesus came to life in in a way that no one ever has before. The way that he lives, he cannot die again. In fact, he owns the keys to death and Hades. And Hades, by the way, is not hell. At least not the way we think of it. Hades refers to the place that dead people go. The place of the dead. Although originally that's what hell meant also, but it's changed over the years in English to be the place of like torment and punishment and things like that. Um, what Jesus is claiming by saying he has the keys to death and Hades is that he has control and he has rule over the state of death and the realm of death. He has total power to open up the realm of the dead and remove anyone he chooses and lock it back up again. Like a warrior who defeated the enemy champion in battle, he has taken death as his hostage. He has taken death as his prisoner of war and it serves him now. And that's good news for anyone who's on his side. Jesus tells John he's got a job. Write down the things he's going to see, things which are, that means the the things that are the conditions of the world at the time that he is writing, and the things coming after this. Some things that he's going to write down are things that are going to happen in the future. For us, some of those things could be past. Some of those things could be right now. Some of those things, maybe most of those things, are still future to us. We'll talk about those things as we come to them. But they were future to John. But Jesus wants John to know And that means he wants the churches to know, and that means he wants you to know what two other symbols mean. Jesus is explicit. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll get into this um, a little bit more next week. For the sake of time, though, um, Jesus is saying that in his hand are the angels of these seven churches and he is walking in the midst of the seven churches, which are represented by these lampstands. And so there's this, there's this hint here, there's this little bit of an idea. The Bible gives us precious few pictures of the heavenly realm, almost like God doesn't want us to dwell on it, but we need to know that it's real. There's a sense in which over the churches of earth are angels, are, are, are servants of God that do his bidding to look out for each individual church. How does that work? Don't know. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't need to explain it. But there is some sort of heavenly representation that is closely aligned with these seven churches. And that would mean with us. And the fact that these lampstands are a symbol of the church is a reminder that the goal of the church is to be a light. That's always been the goal of God's people from, from Israel in the ancient uh, times when they were to be a light for the nations to the present day when we continue to be a, a channel for the message, the good news about Jesus Christ and to be a light to 
this world. And yet Jesus is in the midst of it. Everything that these Christians and these seven churches are enduring and dealing with, the hardships, the trials, the persecutions, the sufferings, the economic turmoil, we'll see all that in chapter 2 and 3. They're going to go through a lot of dark stuff. Maybe you are going through some dark stuff. But Jesus walks in the midst of that. He has heavenly beings watching over you. And he holds those in his hand. Jesus has got this. No matter how hard things get, no matter how ugly things get, no matter how difficult or scary or turmoily that these things get, Jesus has this. He's present and he's in charge. And he's the one who is saying, fear not. Fear not. We live in a world that is absolutely captivated by fear. Fear on all sides. Fear of everything that everyone is going to do to you tomorrow. But if you're a Christian, you see this picture of Jesus. Who do you need to fear? Him. And yet he says, fear not. And so what is left to be afraid of? What is left to be worried about? There is this picture of Jesus that we're given in these verses here who is absolutely in control. He is far above everything. And yet he is so near as to be walking in the midst of his people. And he tells us not to be afraid. I don't know about you, but I think that is a very practical thing that I need to hear in my life. When everyone on the news and, and everyone at work and everyone on social media is telling you to be afraid and telling you where the world is headed and telling you how bad things are going to get, there is a Jesus who is above it all who is telling you, do not be afraid. I have been there since the beginning. I will be there past the end and I am in control. That's a Jesus worth worshiping. And that's a Jesus worth digging into a little bit more. So I hope you will Join us as we continue to move through this book. Let's give our thanks and praise to this Jesus who does this for us. Father in heaven, we are uh, eternally thankful that you sent your Son to become like us that we could become like him and escape the death that we rightly deserve. 
We thank you, Father, that you have exalted him to the right hand. We thank you that you have given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee on heaven, on earth, will bow, must bow. We thank you, Father, that in him we can have complete confidence that no matter how sideways this world may seem to go, no matter what this world might try to do to us, no matter how difficult it might seem at times to follow him, he is in control. And he is both far above us and so desperately near. Would you help us to trust him and to wait on him and the good things that he has for his people? It's in his name we pray. Amen.